invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we'll be walking through chapter 14, the passage that was uh, just read for us. With that, will you join me with a word of prayer? Our Lord God, our Heavenly Father, through the prophets Elijah and Elisha, you continued the prophetic pattern of teaching your people the true faith, of demonstrating through miracles your presence in creation to heal. Grant that we, your church, may see in Jesus Christ the true and the final prophet whose teaching and miracles continue through your church. Would you feed us now in your word that we might serve you courageously all of our days? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew for this new year here. And at one point here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. So when we come to Matthew 14 here, we have two different kings. Which will you serve? We have two different feasts. Which feast will you enjoy? See, the one king in our passage has everything. Property. He's got power, authority, fame, and riches. While the other king, he has no place to lay his head. He's hunted like an enemy of the state. And he's rejected by those he's come to help. The one king invites to great wealth. The other invites to self-denial, pursuit of the cross, a following him in humility and even death. How do you like those descriptions? Which one do you want to serve? Okay. As we walk through Matthew, what we see is that Matthew has several overlays from Old Testament stories. To see what Matthew is doing as he writes down this gospel of Jesus Christ, we must see that he's telling Israel's story afresh, where Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel was to be and to do. So we have throughout that Jesus is the fulfillment. That's what he says. I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's come, as we've seen in Matthew's writing, he's come as the new and better Adam, the new Moses, the new David. And as we looked at Matthew 13 last week, we saw him come, Jesus, as the new and better Solomon. In his wisdom, he speaks riddles. And those riddles separate and they divide. That's just what Jesus said the parables are supposed to do. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he comes preaching and teaching. He divides. Who will you serve? In Israel's story, if you can think back to the Old Testament, when Solomon's reign is coming to an end, think what happens to that kingdom. Do you remember? Division. A big division. The kingdom divides and loyalties amongst God's people lean either towards the kingdom in the north or the kingdom in the south. So in Matthew's gospel, from here on, we're going to hear echoes of that divided kingdom. Even here, we're going to be looking at there's two kings. Which king will you serve? So we're going to hear from here on echoes of David's kingdom, which has been divided now. Corrupt rulers, the outspoken prophets, those prophets commanding doom on the wicked and repentance to the rebellious. Okay, that's what, as you read about the divided kingdom, that's what you get. You get corrupt rulers on one hand, and you got loudmouth prophets. So what should we expect here? Kings and loudmouth prophets. Now, if you think about some prominent prophets in the Old Testament, you come up with two 
prophets especially, one named Elijah and another named Elisha. And we'll see them here today. As Matthew 13 ends, Matthew records this quotation from the Old Testament Scripture. He said, a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown. <clears throat> now is the time in Matthew's gospel for the prophets to come to the front. And our chief prophet here is without honor in his hometown. He's hated by followers of other kings. And his own followers are hated by those rulers as well. Jesus, the prophet, comes today, and he comes as the king of the feast. It's great. The true prophet comes as the king or the lord of the feast. But before we meet the king of the feast, okay, before we meet that king, we need to meet another king, a different king. Turns out he's a tyrant king. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Remember, the last word in Matthew 13 is the great amount of disbelief in the land amongst God's people. There's disbelief amongst them. In his hometown, the prophet is without honor. Well, for John the Baptist, whose name is brought up here, he's the forerunner to this true prophet Jesus, and that holds true. As John the Baptist goes preaching, he is not welcome at home. We're introduced to a king here named Herod the Great. Or no, excuse me, this is Herod, not Herod Antipas. Herod the Great, his father, was the one who had all those innocent children, boys, killed in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Herod the Great divided his rule amongst four of his sons. We're introduced to Herod Antipas here, who was that son in charge of this region here. Okay, he's the ruler of this region. Not really a king, but he accepts that title gladly. This Herod is like a dog on a leash, and he feels threats all around. So that when a guy like Jesus shows up, and, and he's doing great deeds, whether he's a king or not, he's drawing great crowds, this is a threat, and Herod Antipas fears. He reasons. Did you hear his reasoning for who he thinks this Jesus really is? He probably has more faith than a lot of the Jews that were listening to Jesus. He says, well, there must be a resurrection of the, from the dead, and this must be John the Baptist coming back from the dead. And as the reader, we're like, huh, well, what happened to John the Baptist? We don't have anything before this to tell us what happened to John. So for this king, when he sees Jesus, he sees ghosts, whereas the religious leaders of the day saw Satan. But who do we see? What happened to John the Baptist? So John, uh, Matthew 14, verse 3, tells us. For Herod seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Well, this happens amongst the bourgeois, doesn't it? Antipas was married, and his marriage was for allegiance to with another powerful country, but it lacked some luster in his eyes. But his brother Philip, who also was a, a ruler in a different part, he was married to Herodias. Now, that woman caught this Herod's eye, and he wanted to be done with his wife, and he wanted to pursue his brother's wife. And Herodias seemed to share that same desire, 
And so they come together. Now, if you've got a loudmouth prophet in the land, what's he going to say about this arrangement? John was not in favor of it. And he told the king very publicly that this arrangement is not lawful. Well, when you speak out against a powerful ruler and his beloved wife, what's to happen? What's a king to do? Chapter 14, verse 5. And though he, this Herod, wanted to put him to death, uh, he feared the people because they held this John the, the Baptist to be a prophet. The, the, the people held him to be a, a prophet. He was a prophet. So with eyes to see and ears to hear, what do we see? We see Elijah. Remember, this is the divided kingdom. And Elijah prophesied in this divided kingdom. John the Baptist, when, when he's described in other Gospels, and when he appears on the scene, he more closely resembles a wild beast in the wilderness than a temple-serving prophet or priest. From his clothing to his strange diet to the harsh words of judgment, John the Baptist has come in the way Elijah came. He's come as a new Elijah. And remember that prophet of old, that old Elijah. Remember, he was also serving a king and queen who wanted his head. Remember, he, his word was rejected by those he came to speak with. Remember that his ministry saw for the longest time saw no apparent fruit, no response. Jesus even said in a different place about, about this John the Baptist. What does he say? He says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. John, Jesus is telling the crowds and the disciples, saying, that John the Baptist, that's Elijah. Remember he was coming back, Elijah's coming back? Well, he did come. And when this prophet came speaking, the people did to him whatever they wanted. And whatever happened to him is going to happen to the Son of Man. They did to him whatever they wanted. And what was it they wanted to do? Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. <clears throat> but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. <clears throat> he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Was there ever a death more absurd than this? Isn't it just, it's crazy. A king who was so afraid to act on his desires, but then he vows a reward for Herodias' daughter, whose dance has transfixed his lust-starved cowardice. Hips and red-painted lips pleased him so much. Remember Esther dancing before, or presented to King Ahasuerus? He offers up to her half of, her, half of his kingdom. But here we have an anti-Esther. And she is offered up whatever she could name. Mom steps in, Herodias steps in and suggests, hey, why not John the Baptist's head? And Antipas, filled with sorrow and regret, obliges, fulfilling his vows. See, our old, our Elijah, John the Baptist, is not spared regal wrath. John the Baptist is slain. 
this Elijah who was come to prepare the way for a different prophet and a new Elisha does not get taken up into heaven by chariots of fire, but he is indeed slain. So at this feast, at this feast at the beginning of chapter 14 here, people are fed and dancing is enjoyed and the faithful are slain while Satan pulls the strings. Jesus has come preaching the good news of his kingdom and its first citizen and herald has just been beheaded. This Lord, this King, He is a tyrant. However, another feast will come with another King presiding at that one. And this is the Lord of the feast. This King comes to bring life and fullness of joy. And we're introduced to this King in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus' sorrow is crowded out. I think this verse is significant. There's a lot of times when we see what Jesus is and does, we have no way of connecting with who this guy is. But we can relate here, can't we? Why does Jesus seek isolation? He's had a busy day, right? Why is he seeking isolation? What does it say? Now, when Jesus heard this, what did he just hear? Well, he heard that his cousin's just been killed. A dear friend of his. The forerunner to prepare the way. What did it look like to prepare the way for Jesus but to be imprisoned and to have your head cut off? And so Jesus seeks isolation to have his grief wash over him. The vacancy of warmth sinks in. Jesus' cousin and friend, the one preparing the way, has just been killed. And Jesus wants space, frozen time to absorb his sorrow. But instead of isolation, the crowds, they press in. Verse 14. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. He goes ashore as if he's been walking on the sea of Gentiles, proclaiming and healing. He goes on shore in compassion. At the end of chapter 9, it says that when, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Jesus' immense grief, he gives himself still for the good of the people. Verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Yeah, what did we do in grade school? We shared. And so there's not a feast here. The disciples see this, and they see the crowds, and they're like, we, got, we don't have enough Lunchables to go around here. Now, I don't think the disciples disagreed. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he said what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I don't think they're disagreeing with that. But they also recognize, a guy's got to eat. We've got to have food here. The request for the men, these disciples, it's really quite reasonable. Bread is required on some level. Words from Jesus' lips give life, but they can't be turned into carbohydrate, to protein, and to fat. So they request, let's let the people go home or go to the villages so they can, they can get food. But Jesus, is, he's got this piercing gaze, I can imagine. And in his gaze, he's just asking with his eyes and he's commanding them, 
to my disciples, do, do you love me? If you love me, then feed my sheep. And so he invites them in. He says, we don't have to go there. You can feed them. Verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Five loaves and two fish. Well, well, it ain't much. But these seven food items should about feed 5,000 or so. Now, Jesus has asked of them some very outlandish things, but this might just top it all. What's he doing, though? He, he invites them in. He invites the disciples into this project that he's, he's working on here. He's like that, that older brother that invites the younger siblings just to, to bring your best, bring your only, as hopelessly deficient and, and insufficient as your gifts might be. The older brother smiles, gives internal affirmation to his younger brothers. In his mind, in his heart, he's commending them, well done. Five loaves and two fish, yeah. That ought to be enough. Just bring them to me. That's his command. Bring them to me. Let's feast this crowd. Am I not the Lord of the feast? Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking up five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now remember, as, as we inhabit Jesus' story through Matthew's writing here, we're in the divided kingdom. And we see that Jesus' kingdom leads to the feast. Now our Old Testament remi reading reminds us that um, that Elijah had fed miraculously. The, the flour and the oil didn't run out. But Elijah did depart. Elijah finally, his mission was done. Elijah was not killed like our Elijah and John the Baptist, but he was taken up into heaven miraculously. But what did he do before he ascended? Didn't he anoint a successor? And who was that successor? but the prophet Elisha. Elisha, whose name shares the same root with the name Joshua, with the same, name of Je same root of the name Jesus. This Elisha was given a double portion of the spirit that was given to Elijah. And Elisha was commissioned to cross through, the, pass through the Jordan River and to go and reconquer the land. And as he goes through the land, reconquering the land, he performs miracles. He raises an axe to float on the water, as we'll soon see Jesus and Peter walking on the water. So we have in this portion, not only a miraculous feeding, we have a new Elisha. A true and a final Elisha has come. If we were to read 2 Kings chapter 4, we would read a story of that old Elisha where he was amongst a, a number of prophets. Over a hundred prophets were gathered, and they were short some food. And so out of the meager supply of loaves of bread, what does he do? He multiplies that, or God multiplies it through him, so that the crowd of prophets were fed. It's significant to see the Elijah, Elisha of old multiplies bread to feed prophets. The true and the better Elisha has come. And he has come as the true king. And he has come as the master 
of the feast. Verse 21 tells us that 5,000 men were fed plus women and children. This king comes not to kill and to destroy, but to feast and to give life. How does he do it? In verse 19 it says, what does he do? He simply takes the five loaves and the two fishes and he looks up to heaven and he blesses and he, he breaks and then he gives. Are those motions familiar to us of what Jesus does with us every week as we gather here? The Lord of the feasts has given his supper. The motions that we've just read about in this miraculous feeding are what we do every Sunday as we sit down together to feast at table with our king. This meal is in some ways a precursor to the Lord's Supper, to our communion, isn't it? If we are in the divided kingdom of Israel, like Matthew's telling us, what would this feast mean? What would this meal mean? Wouldn't it be a new Passover? Wouldn't this mean that there's a new exodus coming? And who is leading us in that kingdom, that exodus? It has got to be this prophet who fulfills Elijah's role, who comes as the true and the final Elisha. So what does this meal mean for us today? This miracle, the precursor of the Lord's Supper. What, is it, what are the implications for us today? I think it means that at the very base here, that we who follow Jesus are living sacrifices. That here it wasn't just bread and fish being lifted up and offered as sacrifices. The disciples were very much in the same boat. See, Jesus repeats the actions which God did at creation, which priests would do as they offered up food in their sacrifices. What are the motions? Jesus takes hold of the offered good. He takes hold of what is offered. And then what does he do? Jesus gives thanks for it. The giver of all good things is acknowledged and given thanks to. The giver of all good things. And then what does Jesus do? But he breaks it. He breaks the offering. He breaks the bread in order to what? To give. He gives. This is what is happening to the disciples as well. They're taken by Jesus, given thanks to. They indeed are broken to be given. This is exactly what we sign up for every time we gather. As we acknowledge who Jesus is and as we seek to follow him, this is what we sign up for. When he says we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, it's a call to become living sacrifices, which means we will be painfully broken time and again, almost recklessly given for the good of the body and for the life of the world. See, we are the new people formed and reformed in Christ. When there's 12 leftover baskets, what's that signify? How many disciples were there? There's 12, right? How many tribes of Israel? Weren't there 12? He's not just about bread and, and feeling, filling up stomachs here. The imagery here is that there's 12 baskets left over, and they're commissioned then to go out, to be given. Jesus is endeavoring to feast a world on his good news, on his body, and on his blood. And he's commissioning followers to become living sacrifices to be distributed in that word. As Jesus was the new Israel, the 12 baskets become the 12 tribes, the 12 disciples. These are baskets given. And we who follow Jesus are those baskets, the offspring of those disciples, the fullness of God's people. And we are that body. We are that people of prophets 
who the Elisha of old fed. We are now regularly fed by the true and the final Elisha, prophet sent out as the word of God. We dwell in God's presence regularly to receive his word and to be given to deliver it for that world. And who is this Jesus whom we follow? Who is this elder brother whom we delight to serve? Well, it's Jesus who offers us up as he himself was offered up. If we've been buried with him in a baptism like his, if we have a share in the fellowship of his sufferings, then following him will mean sorrow that he himself has tasted. But if we share in a death like his, will we not also share in a resurrection like his? Doesn't Paul say, for to me to live and is Christ and to die is gain? Our elder, our elder brother delights to serve us and we delight to serve him, to follow him is to offer up our entire being, to be used by Him as He sees fit. It means that we are to be broken, to be remade in order to be given for the life of the world. This Jesus, this Lord of the feast, takes hold of us, gives thanks, and He offers us up as a pleasing sacrifice to our Father in heaven. Jesus forms us in His body as we partake of His body, so take heart and follow with everything that we are and everything that we have. We are not our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ, that we might be formed as he sees fit in his own image. So when you see this passage, take great heart. Take great courage. This story, this meal is an emblem of hope and of confidence that Jesus has come as the Lord of the feast. And no, we don't taste it fully in this life. But in his death and in his resurrection, we have a life of assurance that in him, death will not have the last word. See, it is Jesus' benevolent hand that takes hold of us exactly where we are. It is those hands that then hold us up and give thanks to the Father for his siblings, his daughters, his sons. And then he takes us and breaks us. But in that breaking, he reforms us anew in his image. It is a severe mercy that he breaks us and makes us new. And why all of this? To what end are we broken and reformed? That we might be given for the glory of God, for the good of the church, and for the life of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful that he is the Lord of the feast, and we confess that we are a hungry people. We are a people who lack, a people who are in need. And so we ask you to send Jesus by your Spirit to come and to fill us up that we might be strengthened, that we might have good courage to serve you gladly as you offer us up as living sacrifices. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.